Welcome to New Life Downtown Sunday School, March 9, 2014. Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, beautiful day. Thank you for everybody here. And thank you for the opportunity to just go over some of this material that is close to your heart. And um, Lord, we just invite you into this time. Speak to each one of us as you will. Um, Open our hearts, open our eyes to this material, and uh, let your Holy Spirit speak through it um, in the way that you will. Lord, we love you. We are grateful for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm going to just kind of go over what we went over last week, just a quick summary. Um, We did the four essential keys uh, to trustworthy community. And if you were here last week, you'll remember we went over the human element and the iceberg. Thank you. So we went over the iceberg, kind of the idea that um, when we meet people, when we're in community with people, sometimes we only see what's above the waterline on the surface, Uh, but underneath the waterline from the picture, you can see there's a whole lot more. Um, Their story, their pain, their experiences that they've been through, and it's just a good reminder uh, as we flow in and out of community that there's more to the story than what we can just see on the surface. We also went over the uh, God-given longings and the layers of longings. And um, just a reminder that acceptance, security, and significance are within all of us as God-given longings. And then there's different layers of those, the critical, crucial, and casual longings. And we talked about those in regards to understanding the human element. And then we talked about how important vulnerability is. We heard from Brene Brown. We're going to hear again from her today regarding shame. And um, we, we barely touched on shame last week, but we're going to dive into it today um, as we move forward with how to respond to addiction. And then this is the point that we missed last week, and that's how to have a wise response. So I'm going to start there today. Um, this comes from the book Norman Wright, and it's called Helping Those Who Hurt. And he's got a section of there in the book when we respond to people, there's a right way to respond to those who are hurting within trustworthy community, and there's a wrong way to respond. So I'm just going to read off a couple um, what to do and what not to do. So what not to do is don't try to minimize your friend's pain with comments like it's probably, not for the, or, it's probably for the best, things could be worse, you'll remarry, you're young, you can always have another one, you're strong, you'll get over it soon, you know God is in control. Comments like these might be an attempt to offer hope, but to a hurting person they sound as though you don't comprehend the enormity of what's happened and they don't acknowledge their pain and loss. What you can do is you can offer a simple understanding statement such as, this must be very hard for you. I share your feelings of loss. I wish I could take the hurt away. In comments like these, let the person know you acknowledge their pain and that it's okay for them to feel that way. What's best to do? Say, I'm so sorry. Then add, I know how special he was to you. I'll miss her also. I want to help you. I'm available anytime you need me. I've been praying for you. Is there something specific I should be praying for? What not to say? Don't say you shouldn't feel that way. Don't say, do not try to answer her questions of why. You really don't have the answers, and at this time, even the true answer may not be apparent to her. Don't offer spiritual answers as to why she's facing this problem, or tell her that she'll be a stronger person afterward. We don't know why tragedies happen and why certain people have to go through such trauma. What you can say is encourage her to write down her thoughts and feelings. Often just seeing her thoughts on paper helps her deal with what she is facing. 
You might also say, I don't know why. I guess both of us would like to have some answers at this time. I wish I had an answer to give you. You can also agree when she expresses her feelings and say, yes, what happened to you isn't fair and doesn't make any sense, whether or not you share the same perspective. Also, allow her all the time she needs to deal effectively with all the phases of her grief. Couple more. What not to say. Don't say I understand when you haven't faced the same situation. Telling someone that everything will be all right when you have never known the depth or of her hardship is an empty statement. And she doesn't need to hear horror stories of people you know who have been through something similar. Don't offer cliches or be unrealistically optimistic to cover up your insecurities. Don't use shoulds or if onlys, such as you should give the clothes, you should have given the clothes away. You should go back to work and get over this. You should have you should have more faith. If only you had watched him more carefully, if only you hadn't been so strict. Don't offer unasked for advice. If your suggestions weren't solicited, they may not be appreciated. What you can do is be honest about your experiences. If you haven't endured the particular kind of tragedy, say, I haven't been through what you're facing, but I want you to know I care about you and will support you through the difficult time ahead. If you've had a similar crisis, tell her about it briefly, adding that you can empathize with her feelings. You can also respond cautiously and prayerfully with uplifting and edifying ideas when your friend asks for help. You can indicate your love by saying, I really feel awkward because I'm not sure what to say or what you need or how to help you, but I want you to know that I love you and I'm praying for you, and I'm available. So those are some do's and don'ts of responding to people that are hurting and going through tragedy. And when we're in trustworthy community, things like that will help um, create a deeper level of connection within your groups and within your relationships. So is that helpful? Are those things helpful? Cool. All right, so to finish up last week's lesson, basically I'm just throwing out the challenge to look at the waterline with the people you've encountered and sink out what is below. It does take time and it does take intentionality, but it's so worth it for the people that we encounter in our lives. All right, now we're going to move to responding to addiction. And I'm going to need your help. I need three volunteers to do some reading for me. Is there three people here that brought their Bibles to Sunday school? Okay, what's your name? Macy. Okay, Macy, can you read Matthew 22? 36 through 40. That's Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Who else? What's your name? Kathy? Kathy, can you read John 8, 1 through 11? John 8, 1 through 11. And one more volunteer. Jason? Um, the parable of the lost son, Luke 15, 11 through 31. Luke 15, 11 through 31. All right, start us off with Matthew 22. Great, thank you. Now, as we read these, it's in the context. Um, the first critical point to remember as we respond to addiction, I want you to keep in mind that this is, maybe you today here are experiencing addiction or walking through an addiction, um, or maybe you have a close loved one or someone in your small group or within your work that's dealing with an addiction. So I want you to look, for, look at it from both perspectives, both for yourself and both for someone that you might care and love. And so this one is create and find safe and loving environment. And the greatest commandment reminds us that we need to love others as ourselves. And it's a commandment from God that he gave us um, to walk out relationship in. Okay, Kathy, can you read John 8, 1 through 11? 
Great, thank you. So the first one was about love. This one was about judgment. We are not to judge those that are going through sin, through addiction, um, through their own pain, their own experience. And Jesus sets a good parable here uh, to give us the picture that those who have not sinned may cast the first stone. And we all know as humans, we all sin. So we cannot cast a stone against those who are going through difficult times. Um, Jason, can you read the parable of the lost son? Okay, that's pretty powerful scripture right there. I'm going to reread that last part. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he is found. So again, three pictures of um, creating a safe and loving environment, finding a safe and uh, encouraging environment. Uh, This last scripture is all about unconditional love. And so through these three scriptures, we can see in responding to addiction, we need to have love, lack of condemnation and judgment, and unconditional love. Make sense? Okay. The next one we're going to go to is identifying and understanding addiction. Um, this, is, this can go deep. We could spend weeks on this, but I'm going to try to do my best to cover it in like five minutes, five to ten minutes. Um, but there are some crucial points that are um, essential to understand what addiction is. The definition of addiction is habitual, psychological, and physiological dependence on a substance or practice beyond one's voluntary control. They are powerless over it. It's a wrong way of thinking, and it is considered a disease. One way to explain this, I call it uh, the mind tracks. And so if you think, let's take alcohol for instance. There's all these reasons over here of why to drink alcohol and take it to a level beyond control. It feels good. It may taste good. It gives you a buzz. It will numb the pain that you're dealing with. And so to a human being, to an individual, subconsciously, when they go to that level of alcoholism, there's all these reasons why it's good to do it to them. It makes sense. It's logical. It will help them medicate the pain that they're going through, get them into this high of pleasure that feels good to just get a break from what they're dealing with. Then on the other side, another way of thinking are all the reasons why not to do it. So it might be it's against their morals, it's against their values, it's against scripture, Um, their parents um, told them not to do it, maybe their society says, yeah, you can drink a little bit, but not this much, you know, drinking and driving. There's all these reasons why not to do it. But the addict mind gets into a place that when they start going down this track towards all the reasons why it's good to them, they can't see all the reasons why not to do them. And so there's there's basically a point of no return. And so we talk about in recovery groups and things like that, we can put safeguards in place. You know, don't go to a bar. Maybe stay in. Don't go out after midnight, things like that. Um, Another addiction is sexual addiction. And so there might be things like covenant eyes. Um, You know, again, who are you hanging out with? Those types of things. But again, once you get past the point of no return, all the mind sees is all the reasons to do it. And you can't see the reasons why not to do it. And then until the behavior is acted out, that's when they come back to that point where they do have a choice over which way they go. Does that make sense? Does that help a little bit? Um, And we're going to dive into this a little bit deeper. So what are some obvious uh, addictions out there? Just raise your hand and spit them out. What are some obvious addictions that are out there that we know of in our culture and society today? What's that? Gambling. Yep. Yep, prescription meds. 
What else? Yes, social media. Illegal drugs. What else? Sugar, yep. Yep. Very good. Porn, yep. What else? Anything else? Eating disorders, definitely. Okay, good. Those are good, good obvious um, examples of addictions. Now, I had created a list here. The obvious ones that I listed were alcohol, illegal drugs, legal drugs, prescription drugs, sex and pornography, work. Sometimes that could be listed on the not so obvious, but you've heard the term workaholic. Um, again, we're thinking in terms of a behavior that someone does to medicate um, pain, medicate abuse in their life. And so some people will just go to work and work all day, work all night, work on the weekends just to medicate that pain because they're incapable of feeling the feelings to deal with what, what they went through. Uh, gambling, nicotine, and food. And then not so obvious um, that maybe in our culture we don't typically think of, but caffeine and Starbucks. Can anybody relate to these on the not so obvious? My wife's not here yet, but she definitely loves Starbucks. Um, smartphones, the red numbers, I'll admit to that one. Whenever a red number comes in on my phone, I have to clear it off no matter where I am. Um, that's a good example, though. Like, how many times do you see someone when they're driving and they have a smartphone out and they're texting or they're doing social media? Um, could we consider that an addiction? Again, right reasons to do it, stay connected, um, feel connected to people. Um, taking care of work, things like that. But the wrong reasons, like when you're in a car, the danger of doing that and getting in an accident, killing someone else, killing yourself. So again, um, again, not so obvious, but I just want to make you aware that um, there's a lot of addictions out there, and there's probably more addicts around us than, than what we normally think of. So social media, that was mentioned. Um, anybody addicted to social media in here? No one's willing to raise their hands. She's raising her hand for her. Um, I'll raise my hand on that one. Definitely addicted to social media. That's a whole another conversation about, you know, face-to-face -face connection and are we losing that intimacy with each other through social media. Uh, gaming, this is a big one. Um, I'm in the IT world, so I have a lot of friends that on, the, on nights and weekends, they go home and game. They game for hours. Uh, serving at church. This is an interesting one. Have you ever thought of serving at church as being an addiction? Think about that for a second. In a lot of the training and, and experience I've had, there's people that will serve in the church to medicate the pain that they feel so that they feel accepted, secure, significant, but it may just be medicating the underlying root issues of what they're going through that they've never dealt with. So just think about that one for a second. Running. There's a healthy um, example of running, and there's an unhealthy example of running. Um, I've known individuals that run marathons and triathlons, and it's completely normal, completely healthy. But I also know some individuals that they run to medicate their feelings and the pain that they've had in their life. And so that's another one, not so obvious, um, but just to keep in mind. These, these were mentioned love addiction, relationship addiction. People are addicted. That kind of plays out when you see movies, you see the um, honeymoon type relationship, the sparks, the chemistry, um, but anyone that's been married for more than 
six to nine months know that that's not what true love is. True love is patient, it's kind, it's long-lasting. And so, but a lot of times from our culture, from the movies we watch, love and relationship addiction can come into people's lives. So that's another one, maybe not so obvious, but it is there. And then spending, shopping. Feels good to spend and to shop, doesn't it? Think about that one for a second as well. So just um, just a list of obvious addictions and not so obvious addictions. This I wanted to show um, and make a point here. This is called the circle of life. And so these are all the areas that we as human beings have within our life. So we all have marriage and family, physical, emotional, and intellectual, vocational, social, financial, and a creative slash innovative circle in our life. It's a dimension. So these are the eight dimensions of our life. And in the middle, we choose to put something in there. And so a lot of times with addiction, the addict will put that as their God. It's the thing that saves them from their pain, from their experience. They might find intimacy with it, connection, those types of things. And it could basically influence some or all of the dimensions of their life. And depending on who you know, but you may have seen some people go through this, where it could affect all dimensions and and ruin their life. It might affect a couple of their dimensions, such as like vocational, their job, maybe uh, their um, their social life. A lot of times marriage and family. You hurt the people that you love the most. And so the, the point of this is like the circle of life. The, the goal is to put God in the middle and have him influence all those areas. But a lot of times the addict will put alcohol, sex, drugs, other things in the middle of that circle, which influences the entire dimensions of their life. One other point I want to make with this is we are, we are complex beings. And so we want to remember when we're dealing with addiction and dealing with an addict that that's a piece of them. It's not the whole piece of them, or it's not the holistic being of who they are. And so while they may be struggling in one area, we have to remember that God created them as well in his image, and that they have a lot to offer the world. They have all these other dimensions that are healthy, that are good, but they're struggling with that one um, piece. And we have to remember, go back to those three verses that we read. That's how we need to respond to them. Now, I am going to get to a point, too, because there is um, boundary setting that has to be uh, noted. We can't ignore that if an addiction is affecting you as a spouse, as a relative, as a friend. Um, A good example is gambling. Within a marriage, if there's gambling going on and it's basically taking all the money away from your joint funds and things like that, boundaries have to be set. And I've seen where spouses have had to basically break that joint bank account, for instance, and separate out their funds so that their funds aren't being thrown into the addiction as well. And so I just make that point. We'll get to it a little bit later as well. But we have to respond in love without judgment, with unconditional care. But we also have to be careful and set boundaries so that their addiction doesn't become um, inflicting on you. All right? Okay, I handed out the codependence uh, tree. Do you guys all have that? Why don't you guys bring that out? This is important because a lot of times with addiction, uh, 
we as the church and we as people who care for those in addiction will look at how to respond to them based on this tree. And so we'll go after the symptoms, which is everything listed up in the branches uh, up top, but we will miss the root. And if you, get, if you don't take anything else from today, I want you to take this. This is key to responding to addiction. We have to take care of the roots. Up top were all the addictions that we listed. There's some other ones if you look at it, all the things that are circled up top. There's the drugs, the sex, the alcohol, uh, pain medication, money, gambling, overeating, anorexia, bulimia. Those are all symptoms of the addiction. But if you go down this stump here, it's the codependency core, and it's all caused by the roots here. So you've got abandonment. I can't read that. What are these? Abuse. What are these two? Yeah, enmeshment and neglect. Abandonment and abuse. And notice the four things on top of there. What does that say? Shame. It's listed four times because it's making the point that all this stuff that happened either as a child or maybe within a relationship. Um, another one that's not up here, but you could say pain when people die, people that are close to you and pass away, creates pain inside. And all this stuff creates pain. And then around that pain is shame, which causes you to be codependent and become codependent on things up in the, in the branches of the tree. So does that make sense? And so we're going to talk about shame today. We're going to spend a substantial amount on shame because in order for us to respond to addiction, we have to understand shame and how to get past and through shame. But in order to get past and through it, we have to understand what that is. So keep that in your mind as we move on into shame here. And one last thing before we go to shame. Um, there's a quote. There's actually three quotes. I'm going to read them. One is, lust is the craving for salt of a man or woman who is dying of thirst. So think about that for a second. I'm going to say it one more time. Lust is the craving for salt of a man or woman who is dying of thirst. It's not the shouting in your face elements of addiction that give it so much power over humanity, but rather it's the whispering of a lie. Let me read that one more time. It's not the shouting in your face elements of addiction that gives it so much power over humanity, but rather it's the whispering of a lie. Remember what I said at the beginning, addiction is a wrong way of thinking. It's believing lies, not truth. It's that mind track that we think this set of reasons of why we do it will help us when really it's the thing that will hurt us and, and bring our lives down. The last quote I want to read is, every man who knocks at the door of a brothel is looking for God. This is by G.K. Chesterton. And the point I want to make here, and I put it up on the screen, is every man or woman who knocks on the door of, fill in the blank. And right now I want you to do that personally. So just take a couple seconds, fill in the blank. blank. What is it for you? When you're looking for God, when you're looking for that connection with God, when you're looking for that intimacy, or to fill that void, that hole within you, what do you put in that blank? Every man or woman who knocks on the door of what is looking for God. Think about that for yourselves for a second we all have that tendency to, towards addictive behavior. While some of us may be way over here in addictive behavior, others of us are just having the tendencies and, and different behaviors that show that. Different scales, for sure. 
A um, couple more things I wrote down about the hole in the heart. It's an absence of God looking for meaning, worth, going back to our longings of acceptance, significance, and security, our desires, and trying to fill that void that was created by the pain in our lives. Okay? All right. We're going to go into shame now. Thank you for that feedback and input. That was very good. All right. Shame is not a lack of decency. And what I mean by that is sometimes um, people can be looked at for how they act or what they wear. And you hear the statement, they should be ashamed of themselves. That is not what shame is. That's a lack of decency, and that's not what we're talking about here. Shame is not an emotion of guilt. And what that means is guilt is an emotion that we feel from the behavior that we do, but it is not shame. Guilt is associated with conviction and the conscience and the Holy Spirit. But that's not shame. Shame is a sickness of the soul. It's a fear of abandonment. It is the source of our sin, and it's the consequence of our sin. Shame is the belief that I am not good, I am not worth it, and I am not valuable. And then hitting on the fall here, sources of shame, it started uh, in the garden when Adam and Eve hid from God after they took from the tree. God knew exactly where they were, but they still wanted to hide because of their shame. And that's what shame does to each and every one of us. Shame comes from a worldly culture. It comes from a religion without grace. It can come from unaccepting parents. And it can be generational. I want to touch on this last one. A lot of times, parents or grandparents will have shame that they've carried from their parents and their grandparents. And if we never deal with it, if we never get it into the light you'll pass it on for generation and generation. And so we got to be cognizant of that. Okay, I'm going to go to a video here. And this is Brene Brown again. She says, Shame is an unspoken epidemic. It's the secret behind many forms of broken behavior. And here's her talk. From vulnerability... Here, let me start over. She talked about vulnerability last week. We watched that. And now she's exploring shame, which, which she researched for about six years before she started researching vulnerability. Um, but she explores what can happen when people confront their shame head on. And so that's what we're going to do. She really emphasizes that we have to talk about shame. We have to get it into the light. We have to get it into the open. But I want to talk about what I've learned. There's two things that I've learned in the last year. Um, the first is vulnerability is not weakness. And that myth is profoundly dangerous. Let me ask you honestly, and I'll give you this, this warning. I'm trained as a therapist, so I can outweigh you uncomfortably. Um, so if you could just raise your hand, that would be awesome. Um, how many of you, honestly, when you're thinking about doing something vulnerable or saying something vulnerable, think, God, vulnerability is weakness, this is weakness? How many of you think of vulnerability and weakness synonymously? The majority of people. Now, let me ask you this question. This past week at TED, 
How many of you, when you saw vulnerability up here, thought it was pure courage? Vulnerability is not weakness. I define vulnerability as emotional risk, exposure, uncertainty. It fuels our daily lives. And I've come to the belief, this is my 12th year doing this research, that vulnerability is our most accurate measurement of courage. To be vulnerable, to let ourselves be seen, to be honest. One of the weird things that's happened is after the TED explosion, um, I got a lot of offers to speak all over the country. Um, everyone from schools and parent meetings to Fortune 500 companies. Um, and so many of the calls went like this. Hey, Dr. Brown, we loved your TED talk. We'd like you to come in and speak. We'd appreciate it if you wouldn't mention vulnerability or shame. <laughs> what would you like for me to talk about? There's three big answers. This is mostly, to be honest with you, from the business sector. Innovation, creativity, and change. So let me go on the record and say, vulnerability is the birthplace of innovation, creativity, and change. <laughs> to create is to make something that has never existed before. There's nothing more vulnerable than that. Adaptability to change is all about vulnerability. The second thing, in addition to really finally understanding the relationship between vulnerability and courage, the second thing I learned is this. We have to talk about shame. Okay, and I'm going to fast forward a little bit here for time's sake. Um, but this gets really good. And I had to write down the name of this TED fellow so I didn't mess it up here. Mishkin Ingawale. I hope I did right by you. I saw the TED fellows my first day here, and he got up and he explained how he was driven to create some technology to help test for anemia because people were dying unnecessarily. And he said, I saw this need, so you know what I did, I made it. And everybody just burst into applause, and they were like, yes! And he said, and it didn't work. <laughs> and then I made it 32 more times. And then it worked. You know what the big secret about TED is? I can't wait to tell people this. I, I guess I'm doing it right now. Um, this is like the failure conference. No, it is. You know why this place is amazing? Because very few people here are afraid to fail. And no one that gets on the stage so far that I've seen has not failed. I have failed miserably many times. I don't think the world understands that because of shame. There's a great quote that saved me this past year by Theodore Roosevelt. Um, a lot of people refer to it as the man in the arena quote. And it goes like this, it is not the critic who counts. It is not the man who sits and points out how the doer of deeds could have done things better and how he falls and stumbles. The credit goes to the man in the arena whose face is marred with dust and blood and sweat but when he's in the arena at best, 
he wins, and at worst he loses, but when he fails, when he loses, he does so daring greatly. And that's what this conference to me is about. That's what life is about, about daring greatly, about being in the arena. When you walk up to that arena and you put your hand on the door and you think, I'm going in and I'm gonna try this, shame is the gremlin who says, uh-uh, you're not good enough. You never finished that MBA. Your wife left you. I know your dad really wasn't in Luxembourg, he was in Sing Sing. I know you, those things that happened to you growing up. I know you don't think that you're pretty enough or smart enough or talented enough or powerful enough. I know your dad never paid attention even when you made CFO. Shame is that thing. And then if we can quiet it down and walk in and say, I'm gonna do this, we look up and the critic that we see pointing and laughing 99% of the time is who? Us. Shame drives two big tapes, never good enough. And if you can talk it out of that one, who do you think you are? The thing to understand about shame is it's not guilt. Shame is a focus on self, guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame is I am bad, guilt is I did something bad. How many of you, if you did something that was hurtful to me, would be willing to say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake? How many of you would be willing to say that? Guilt. I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Shame. I'm sorry, I am a mistake. There is a huge difference between shame and guilt. And here's what you need to know. Shame is highly, highly correlated with addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, eating disorders. And here's what you even need to know more. Guilt, inversely correlated with those things. The ability to hold something we've done or failed to do up against who we want to be is incredibly adaptive. It's uncomfortable, but it's adaptive. The other thing you need to know about shame is it's absolutely organized by gender. If shame washes over me and washes over Chris, it's going to feel the same. Everyone sitting in here knows the warm wash of shame. We're pretty sure that the only people who don't experience shame are people who have no capacity for connection or empathy. Which means, yes, I have a little shame, no, I'm a sociopath. So I would opt for, yes, you have a little shame. Shame feels the same for men and women, but it's organized by gender. For women, the best example I can give you is Anjali, the commercial. I can put the wash on the line, pack the lunches, hand out the kisses, and be work at five to nine. I can bring home the bacon, fry it up in the pan, and never let you forget you're a man. For women, shame is do it all, do it perfectly, and never let them see you sweat. I don't know how much perfume that commercial sold, but I guarantee you it moved a lot of antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds. Shame for women is this web of unattainable, conflicting, competing expectations about who we're supposed to be. And it's a straitjacket. For men, shame is not a bunch of competing, conflicting expectations. Shame is one. Do not be perceived as what? Weak. I did not interview men for the first four years of my study. 
And it wasn't until a man looked at me one day after a book signing and said, I love what you have to say about shame. I'm curious why you didn't mention men. And I said, I don't study men. And he said, that's convenient. <laughs> and I said, why? And he said, because you say to reach out, tell our story, be vulnerable. But you see those books you just signed for my wife and my three daughters? I said, yeah. They'd rather me die on top of my white horse than watch me fall down. Yeah, it's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? We're about out of time, so I'm going to finish up in our outline here. Um, but the question I want to ask is, what does God and the gospel are, have to say about shame? And so here's four scriptures um, that I want to read because they're also very powerful. Romans 8, 1 through 2 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Romans 10, verse 11 says, as Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Psalm 25, 1 through 3 says, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not, do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. Psalm 34, 4 Verse 4 through 5, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. All right, to finish out, there's two more points up here in responding to addiction. Again, whether it may be something that you're dealing with or someone that a loved one is dealing with, but I really do encourage to seek professional counseling and do that in accordance, and I should say professional Christian counseling, but do that in accordance with Scripture and the Holy Spirit. With those three things in play, it is so um, possible to overcome addiction and get to freedom and to help you or your friends or your loved ones get to that place of freedom. And one thing I'll say within that point is, again, it's okay to set boundaries with those people that are going through that. You don't want their addiction to become um, painful on you but you can still do that while loving them and not judging them and giving them unconditional care. Lastly, I'll say commit to the journey uh, with trustworthy community. We talked about trustworthy community last week, and it is a journey. It doesn't happen overnight. I think sometimes in the church we may say, read your Bible more, pray more, fast more. Again, that's probably not the best way to respond. We'll go back to how we opened up the day. Um, that's not the best way to respond to people going through that stuff. It's a lot deeper than that. That stuff is important. The Scripture and the Holy Spirit is essential. Um, but a lot of times, just identifying what's going on, going down to the roots, where is that shame coming from, identifying it as shame, those things have to take place for people to overcome this. So I'm going to end with uh, a Scripture and a poem. The Scripture is Psalm 130. This is that there is hope. With the Lord, with the Gospel, we have hope. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you.
I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all of their sins. And here's a poem from an anonymous author um, that talks about this last point, that it is a journey, um, but with God, he, changed the hearts of, he changes the hearts of men. And why don't you bow your head while I read this, and then I'll end in prayer, and we'll be done. The victory is mine, saith the Lord. The victory is mine. I come when no one sees or hears or knows. But one day in your life it shows. One day in your life it shows. A change has taken place. The weak and feeble has been erased. The fruit of strength there grows. No one seeks this work or how I do it. By my loving, patient hands, oh, but I am satisfied. To change the hearts of men, it gives me great pleasure to do this secret, quiet work and change the hearts of men. Lord, we're just thankful today for this message, for this content, and for your heart towards people that are struggling with addiction and for your guidance of how to respond to addiction. Lord, help each of us in this room understand our own weaknesses. Help us understand the holes that we have and the shame that we have in our lives. And Lord, we just look to you to cover that, to help us identify it, and to help us let it go. Lord, we're grateful for all that you do, for what you did 2,000 years ago with Jesus on the cross, your son. 